Good morning. Thanks for joining us at Highland today. It's great to have you with us. As we begin our time in God's Word, let's go to Him in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to open Your Word together. And we ask that You might fill us with Your Spirit, that You might convict our hearts, that we might grow in our love for You and our love for others. Guide our time. In Jesus' name, amen. When you think of an American legend, who comes to mind? George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, MLK. I often think of a man named Ben Franklin. Certainly, you know Franklin. He wasn't one of our presidents, but he was one of our founding fathers. And when he was young, age of 20, he developed this goal. He created these 13 virtues that were going to govern his life because he wanted to be perfect. Listen to this quote. I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wish to live without any fault at any time. (laughs) No, that's not what we would call a smart goal. There's no way he could achieve that, but that didn't stop him. He created what we would maybe call a spreadsheet today, 13 columns and seven rows, seven days of the week, his 13 virtues. And if he violated one of those virtues on any given day, he'd put an X in the box. His goal was to make his way through a week with as few X's as possible. And even in addition to that, every week he would focus on a different virtue. Maybe it was faith, maybe it was sincerity, maybe it was humility. And he would try to grow in that virtue during the week, trying to grow towards moral perfection. You and I know that he never accomplished his goal. And thankfully he recognized later in life and admitted, though it was a helpful project, that he didn't reach his goal. But I want us to think for a moment about the theological implications of Franklin's endeavor. In his life, he he tried to fix the behavior problems. He, He tried to clean up his act without cleaning up his heart. And today we're we're not gonna talk about the 13 virtues, but we're gonna look at a text in Proverbs that is sort of similar. Solomon's seven severe sins. And we have to resist the temptation to do the exact same thing that Franklin did, trying to clean up our life, trying to clean up our act without first addressing the heart. Because we each need heart transformation before we can have life transformation. And that heart transformation comes through the power of the Holy Spirit, the moment that we become a Christian. We turn away from our sin by the power of the Spirit, and we cry out to Jesus, asking him to forgive us, to rescue us. And we're adopted into his family, and that heart transformation begins And then the life transformation begins. We can't reverse the two. So if you're here today, if you're listening today and you don't know Christ, oh, we're so glad that you're listening. You're so glad you're here. But we have to understand that none of the rest of this matters unless we first have that relationship with Christ. Because we can't reduce a relationship with God just to a checklist of things that we do or don't do. No, we need heart transformation. We can't reverse our salvation and our sanctification. Salvation happens first. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Proverbs. We're going to be in Proverbs chapter 6 today. And as you'll quickly notice, this is not what we'd call a happy text. We're not going to read this at a wedding or a birthday party or a graduation party. This is not going to be the picture of our cover page on Facebook. That's not how it's going to work. This is not a happy text. But I think if we reverse each one of these attributes around, then we get a picture 
of God's heart, a picture of the desired life that he wants for each of us. Well, follow along with me as I read Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. There are six things that the Lord hates and seven things that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. Well, first, why don't we talk through some interpretive details in our text. We notice that that construction, six things, no, seven and that's common in the poetry and the prophecy in the Old Testament. Maybe it's six, no seven, or three, no four. And some suggest that makes the final one in the list emphatic, which is possible, but I actually think it means something different. This was just a poetic device to suggest that the list was not exhaustive. And I think that makes sense when we read this. Certainly God hates more than seven sins. I mean, look at what's not in the list, immorality or laziness. He doesn't talk about stewardship. Certainly those are things that God cares deeply about, but they didn't make the list. So this isn't exhaustive, but it does give us a glimpse into the heart of God of certain things that he might despise. Now, we probably don't use the word abomination very often. I mean, the last time I probably used it legitimately was 15 years ago talking about the abominable snowman. But if someone was to walk up to us on the street and say, you're an abomination, that probably wouldn't leave us feeling warm and fuzzy, would it? And that's how it's used in scripture. The Hebrew word tueva, it's used some 118 times in the Old Testament. It's always translated abominable thing or abomination, almost always used to describe the things that God hates, activities, actions, motivations of humans that God despises. Abomination. Now there's a phrase that some use today that's trite, that's kind of cute, and it sounds like this. Sin is sin. God sees all sin the same, or all sin is equal to God. Maybe you've heard it before. It's ultimately derived from a passage like James 2 verse 10, which says this, for whoever keeps the whole law, but stumbles at one point is guilty of all of it. And this theologically is a crucial verse because James sets up this hypothetical situation. Let's say that someone is perfect for their entire life, for their whole life. And in the last hour of their life, they tell one lie. James tells us that person would be guilty. They would be condemned before a righteous and holy God because of that one sin. Because God's standard for perfection, it's not relative. It's absolute. God demands absolute perfection. Now, obviously that situation is entirely hypothetical because, I mean, when was the last time we went a day or even an hour without violating some aspect of God's law in our heart or in what we do? None of us are even close to perfect. That's why each one of us needs a perfect Savior. But some might take that verse and take it a step farther beyond what the text says and think, well, because all sin, whether it's a lie or murder, would condemn us to hell, then God must see all sin the same. Sin is just the same to God. And frankly, that's just not what we see in this text. It's not what we see in Scripture. I mean, look at the Old Testament law, for example. We get a glimpse into God's heart, into his character. And God has vastly different consequences for different sins, anywhere from a proverbial timeout to a death sentence. All sin is not equal. Well, look at what happened when Jesus was condemned to die and he's standing before Pilate. And what does Jesus say to him? The one who's handed you over to me, they have committed the greater 
sin. All sin is not equal. And we see that in our text today where God reserves the word abomination for a certain class of sins or certain things that he hates the most. All sin condemns us to hell. All sin is equally condemning, but sin is not equal. And that's an important thing for us to understand. All sin equally separates, but not all sin is equally severe. So we're going to look at a list of abominable sins today. And when we hear that word or read that word abomination in Scripture, it should send a shiver down our spine because these are the things that God hates, and we should do our best to run the opposite direction away from these things. So with the rest of our time, we're going to look at each of these seven sins, and each are going to present us with the character question. Looking in the mirror, looking at our own hearts, rather than looking at somebody who's sitting next to us, asking, how can I grow in all seven of these areas? So let's look at the first from our text, haughty eyes. Haughty eyes. Now, if we were to translate that literally, it would be high eyes, which means something different in 2021 than it would in Solomon's day. But what happened in Solomon's day is in a shame and honor culture like the ancient Near East, to look down when you were talking to someone, to have low eyes was a sign of respect. But to have high eyes, to look up at someone was a sign of arrogance and pride. In other words, haughty eyes, a synonym, would be a prideful heart. God hates the sin of pride. Because pride is antithetical to the message of the gospel. It's impossible for a prideful person to cry out to Christ because a prideful person says, I'm okay. I'm good enough. I'm I'm a pretty good person. God's going to accept me someday. I don't need a savior. No, only a humble person can cry out to Jesus and say, I need rescue. I need saving. I need a savior. Is it possible that your pride has kept you away from following Christ? embracing him for your salvation. Because the bad news is that all of us have a sin problem. All of us are born enemies of God. We've all earned by our own behavior, eternity separated from God. But Jesus lived and died in our place. He rose from the dead. That if we cry out to him and say, Jesus, save me, forgive my sins, I want to follow you, he will save us. In your humility, cry out to Christ. It doesn't matter if we don't know Christ or we do know Christ. Either way, God hates the sin of pride, which means he loves humility. And in theory, Christians should be the humblest people on the planet because we have the closest relationship with the greatest example, Jesus himself. But if we're honest, pride is still a reality in all of our hearts because as we battle the flesh, we're going to battle pride, at least the temptation of pride, until the day that we die. So here's our character question. Do I have arrogant eyes or a humble heart? Do I have arrogant eyes or a humble heart? So what does it look like? How can we grow in our humility? Well, there could be dozens and dozens of answers to that question, but here's one. We can grow in humility by thinking on the gospel, by remembering what Jesus has done for us. Maybe it means memorizing passage like Philippians 2, 5 through 11, or maybe it means taking time each day when we pray to to thank God for what he's done for us in Christ, or or maybe it means listening to some worship music and thinking on the gospel, because it's impossible for us to be prideful when we're remembering what Christ has done. We can grow in humility by remembering Jesus and what he's done for us. Well, here's the second 
severe sin is a lying tongue. Now, the tongue, it's the only part of our body that can tell a lie, unless you're going to be super literal. And when you send a text message that's untruthful to say that our thumbs are lying, but that uncovers a core problem in the 21st century because the sin of the tongue is really a sin of communication. And for Solomon, how many ways could he communicate with someone else? Essentially one, face to face. But think of all the different ways that you and I can communicate with someone in the 21st century. Email, text, phone call, FaceTime. We still can talk to people face to face. We can post things on social media. There are so many ways. The list could go on and on of the ways we could communicate, which means the opportunity for sinning with our tongue, sinning in sense of communication, has broadened and broadened and broadened. And it gets even harder when we realize that to say something hurtful, to communicate something hurtful virtually, maybe it's a post or a text message or an email, it's actually easier to, to hurt someone that way than it is face-to-face. It's easier to click send. But if you've ever been on the receiving end of one of those text messages or those emails or that Facebook post, we know it hurts just as much than if someone talked to us face to face. The sin of, sin of communication is even more deadly today than it ever has been. And it's a sobering thought to realize that someday God's going to hold us accountable, not just for the things that we say, but for the things that we send, for the things that we post, for the things that we share. But it's interesting in this passage that God focuses on one sin of the tongue, one sin of communication. It's a a lying tongue. Well, it's because a lie has remarkable power. And we see that later in Proverbs 18, verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Those who love it will eat its fruits. (laughs) Lies have power because in our tongue we hold the ability of death and of life. I mean, think practically of what this looks like. In our culture, at least, fake news spreads six times faster on social media than the truth. That's remarkable, which is practically just a good reminder for us that before we click post, before we click share, we've got to check our sources. Because if something's sensational, if something seems good, too good to be true, if something tells us everything that we want it to tell us, then there's a chance that it's not true. And we've got to be careful before we click share. Because God hates dishonesty, but we flip that around. That means that God loves the truth. So here's our second character question. Do I have lying lips or a truthful tongue? Do I have lying lips or a truthful tongue? Now, there are times when honesty is really hard. Sometimes it's easier just to tell a lie. But God wants us to be honest. He wants us to tell the truth. I mean, think practically of of what this might look like. When someone else on our team or a coworker in the middle of a meeting gets chewed out for a mistake that I made, do we stand up and take it? Or do we just let our coworker take the fall? We get pulled over by a kind police officer and ask us how fast we were going. Do we tell a lie or do we say, do we tell the truth? Or do we tell a lie and say, I just hope that they weren't paying attention. When an accountability partner asks us the difficult questions, do we tell a couple white lies to side skirt the, the truth? Or are we honest about how our week actually went? Do we hide a, a sin struggle from a spouse or a best friend? When we file our taxes, do we cut some corners and tell a couple lies so we get a little more money back? Or do we tell the truth? 
when we're taking that online exam or that quiz, and we know that the teacher expects us not to use our book, use Google or use friends, do we tell the truth? Or do we say, ah, they know everybody else is cheating. It's not a big deal. I'm just going to do it too. God hates dishonesty, which means that he loves the truth. Tell the truth. Here's our third severe sin. Hands that shed innocent blood. Honestly, this should be the least surprising on the list. We know that God hates murder. I mean, look at the sixth of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. But I think the key word in this text, in this passage, is innocent. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. How do I know that God hates murder? How do I know that God specifically hates abortion? Well, from this text. It's hard to imagine on human terms someone that's more innocent than an unborn baby. God hates abortion. But if he hates the shedding of innocent blood, then we flip that around. It means that God loves the preservation of innocent human life. I mean, I think practically what that looks like, think of those in our church family that are serving at Hope Life Center, working to preserve and protect the most vulnerable in our society. God loves when we preserve and protect human life. I think of police officers, men and women that that are serving to, to bring justice to those who are evil and to protect those who are innocent. What a great way to preserve and protect human life. I think of those in the medical field that oftentimes are serving us on the brink of death. What a great way to preserve and protect human life. Well, that's kind of a a specific definition of this severe sin. Maybe we can broaden it a little bit because Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. How does Jesus define murder? Well, hate in our heart. And if we're honest, at some point in our life, we felt hate. And our world is filled with more hate now than ever. I mean, all we need to do is read the news or scroll through social media. Our world is filled with hate. And how often does that same temptation sneak into our hearts as well? Here's another character question. Do I have a hateful heart or kind character? Do I have a hateful heart or kind character? Now, if someone has a different perspective on how to respond to COVID-19, It doesn't give us permission to go on the attack on social media or to gossip about them behind their back. If someone has a a different political perspective in the gray areas, it doesn't give us permission to berate them and, and gossip about them and rip on them. No, we need to be kind to one another. Think of what Jesus said, that we need to love our enemies. We need to pray for those who persecute us. That if there's someone that we disagree with or someone that we seem to be at odds with, One of the best things that we can start to do is to pray for them, to pray for our enemies or pray for those who persecute us or even simply praying for those who might have a different perspective than us. What a great way for us to show kindness toward all people. Well, here's the fourth deadly sin, a heart that devises wicked plans. More than just evil actions, God hates evil intentions. It's what we might call the mind, heart, life progression. The things that we think about become the things that we desire and the things that we desire become the things that we do. So it's important for us not to just fight sin on the action level, but on the heart level and on the mind level of our life. God hates evil intentions. We need integrity of our minds. And integrity is what we do when no one else is looking. And if we really want to find out someone's integrity— then we should analyze their thought life. And I don't know about you, but I guess as a lot of us are grateful that our thoughts aren't written down in a book for all to read. That could be embarrassing. (laughs) 
But God knows our thoughts, doesn't he? He knows what we're going to think even before we think them. So it's important for us to have purity, have integrity in our minds. But that heart that devises, devises wicked schemes is that person who lays in bed at night dreaming about how they might give in to sin. I mean, think of it this way. For a young adult who's fighting for personal purity, maybe they log on to Instagram and are scrolling through and come across an advertisement or a post that's provocative and it sends them down this path, even though they weren't attending it when they logged on, of looking at things they shouldn't. Compare that with someone who lays in bed at night for hours dreaming, fantasizing about how to give in to the sin of immorality and then later acting on those desires. Now, are both of those things sin? Yeah, they are. But that second is in a different class. It's what we'd call premeditated evil. That's the type of sin that this abomination is talking about. And here's our character question. Do I have evil intentions or reverent reflections? Do I have evil intentions or reverent reflections? I was talking with one of our young adults a couple of weeks ago who shared that prayer was hard. Maybe we can resonate with that. Prayer is hard because it's difficult to have a conversation with someone that we can't see, but prayer is important. Prayer is the way that we communicate with God. And, and he shared in specifically that he was trying to pray when he went to bed at night as he was falling asleep, but he felt guilty because over and over again, he'd be falling asleep as he was praying. And I encouraged him to change his perspective. I can't think of a better thing to fall asleep doing than talking to the Lord. What a great way for us to reorient our mind on heavenly things. Now, if that's the only time we're praying throughout the day, then maybe it's important for us to pray at other times during the day. But I think that's exactly what David talks about in Psalm 63, verse five and six. Listen to these words. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. When we wake up at 3 a.m. and can't sleep, what fills our mind? What do we think about? We need to be intentional, fill our mind with reverent reflections. Maybe that means taking that time to pray and talk to the Lord, or, or maybe it means that we spend time memorizing Scripture, meditating Scripture, or reading Scripture. We need to fill our minds with God's Word. Maybe it means just reading a psalm right before we go to bed. Maybe it means getting rid of some of the things that might fill our mind. Spending more time in scripture than social, on social media. Spending more time in prayer than reading the paper or reading the news. We need to intentionally fill our mind with, with reverent reflections, running away from evil things. Well, the fourth clearly fits into the fifth. The fifth is feet that make haste to run to evil. And it seems obvious because the heart that devises wicked schemes is then going to run after evil. It's only a matter of time. But think practically what this might look like, feet running after evil. I mean, there's a high school senior who's got a buddy who's in college, who's home for the weekend. And he invites him to go off to this college party. He knows there's going to be alcohol and worse. The high school senior is underage. He's only 17. He knows he shouldn't go, but his parents are gone for the weekend. And he drops everything he's doing and speeds over to the party. Or think of it this way. Maybe there's a young woman, a student or an employee eating lunch in the lunchroom or at the break room at work. And on the other side of the room over here, some coworkers gossiping about this new girl that nobody likes. She drops 
everything she's doing, leaves her lunch and sprints to the other side of the room to engage in that conversation. That's what it looks like to run after evil. So here's our character question. Do I sprint towards sin or do I run towards righteousness? Do I sprint towards sin? Do I run towards righteousness? Do I run towards an opportunity to serve a brother or a sister? And God convicted me of this within the last couple of weeks. Uh, we had a kind of a problem at our house. Our sewer drain was completely clogged, not once, but twice. And it was a, a stinky problem, if you know what I mean. And I had to rent some equipment to try to get it fixed. And that is not my cup of tea. That is not my spiritual gift by any means. But as we were about to start, I, I looked at my phone and had a text from a good friend of mine that said, I'm on my way over. I'm going to help you fix this problem. I didn't tell him about it. I didn't invite him over. He just showed up. And I'm so glad that he did because I probably wouldn't have fixed the problem on my own. But as I sat back reflecting, I thought, I need to be more like that. I mean, who is going to volunteer to help fix a problem like that? But he ran after righteousness. He ran after an opportunity to serve. I need to be more like that. We need to be more like that. I mean, think of how that starts this week, just with a simple prayer saying, Father, give me an opportunity to serve. Bring someone across my path that I can be kind to, that I can serve this week. And that's a prayer that God's going to answer because it's in line with his will. It's in line with his desire. But sometimes we just have to slow down and open our eyes to the needs that are around us. I mean, think of what that could look like. Maybe it means calling someone we haven't seen for a while and praying together, writing an encouraging note to someone. Maybe there's a neighbor or friend we could bake some cookies for just to brighten up their day. Or maybe there's an older person around us that we could just ask, how can I help you prepare for spring? And we look for ways to serve one another. We need to run after service, run after righteousness. Here's the next severe sin, a false witness that breathes out lies. Now, this might sound a lot like a lying tongue, but the nuance is a little bit different. It's actually more specific. Think of this illustration. Let's say there's a man or a woman who's been charged with murder, and we know that they're innocent. They know that they're innocent, but there's some politics happening behind the scenes that somebody pays off somebody else and gets this false witness to testify and, and ultimately to convict them of murder. And they spend the rest of their life behind bars. I wish that was a made-up story that's happened over and over and over again in the history of our world. God hates the unjust conviction of a righteous person. And that's our next character question. Do I endorse injustice or triumph for the truth? Do I endorse injustice or triumph for the truth? God hates injustice. He hates the intentional conviction of an innocent man or woman. He hates when someone tells a lie to get someone else in trouble which means the converse is true. God has a heart for justice and for the truth and for the protection of the marginalized and the oppressed. And we see that over and over and over again throughout scripture. Do we want to see God's heart for the marginalized, heart for justice? We should read the book of Amos this week. It's, it's filled with a picture of God's heart. When we have an opportunity to, to protect someone who's oppressed or marginalized, to fight for justice, we should take it. We should reflect God's heart for justice. Here's our final severe sin. Someone who sows discord among the brothers. Now notice Solomon doesn't say someone who just sows discord, but someone who sows discord among the brothers, among the family of faith. God hates disunity within his family. I mean, think of the sin that could fall into this category, gossip and slander and a divisive spirit. 
There's so many things that can cause disunity among us, that can cause division, divisiveness, which means then that God loves unity. He says that in Psalm 133, 1, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and when sisters dwell in unity. And that's our final question. Do I create conflict or do I promote peace? Unity is a great thing. It's a God-given thing, a gift to his church. But but conflict is natural because all of us are sinful and conflict is going to happen. But God desires that we resolve conflict in the right way. But when someone hurts us, when someone has a perspective that we don't agree with, it's easy to handle things in the wrong way. It's called gossip. We say something like, you won't believe what I saw Johnny post on social media this week. Or you won't believe what what Susie told me in the lobby after church. We just need to pray for her. I'm sure we've never had a conversation like that. God desires us to handle those things head on because gossip, it gets around and it hurts people and it divides and breaks up his church. Instead, when someone hurts us, we've got to go directly to the person and say something like, you know, what I saw or that message you sent on Facebook, it hurt me. Could we talk about that? Or that comment you made after church, it, it offended me. And I would just like to talk about that and resolve it. Because when someone hurts us or has a perspective we don't agree with, we have two choices. We can either go directly to that person and have a difficult conversation, or we can bite our tongue. But as a family, let's agree not to spread gossip. Because if we have the energy to spread gossip, then we have the energy to go to the person and have a difficult conversation. Now, certainly there's going to be times when someone hurts us that we need to get the authorities involved, maybe the church authority, whether it's the government. But most of the time when someone sins against us, then we can go directly to that person and we need to agree not to spread gossip. Now, we can promote peace by doing something I'll call reverse gossip. I'm not saying that we need to spread rumors or make things up about one another, but when someone does something good or they encourage us or we see them go out of their way to serve, then we can go behind their back and tell others, you won't believe what I saw my friend do. It was amazing or how they served me. And that reverse of gossip, it gets around and it encourages and it builds up the church. (laughs) Well, we can take a deep breath. We just made it through the seven severe sins. And as we wrap up, just a couple things that I want us to remember. Well, when we look at a text like this, someone might feel like, oh man, my life is characterized by all seven of these severe sins or most of these severe sins. And if that's how someone's life looks, the first reaction is to do exactly what Ben Franklin did and and to staple fruit on the tree to try to clean up our act and look better. But I actually think that's a mistake because as Pastor Andrew shared a couple of weeks ago, what we love reveals who we love. And when we're in love with sin, when we're in love with the things of this world, then we have to ask ourselves a really difficult, intense question. Am I a Christian? Do I have the spirit inside of me? I know that's intense, but it's far better to ask that question than making assumptions about our spiritual condition. Now we hold that intention with knowing that none of us are going to be perfect, We're going to struggle. We're going to be tempted in each one of these seven areas. We have to remember that even after a text like this, we might feel a little bit beat up. That God might hate our sin, but he doesn't hate us. God loves you. He sent his son to die for you. And none of these seven abominations are unforgivable. The cross can cover any and all sin. He wants to forgive you. He wants to forgive me. There's love and there's grace and there's forgiveness. 
And God loves us where we are, but he doesn't leave us there. He desires that we grow. And we're not passive in our sanctification. We're not passive in our growth. Maybe it means finding a mentor, spending more time in the word and in prayer, getting involved in Christian community, finding ways that we can grow. God desires us to grow in our love for Christ. He desires that we take the next step in our walk with Christ. Let's pray together. Well, Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word together in a difficult text, a convicting text, but by the power of your spirit, convict each one of our hearts of areas that we need to grow and sharpen and and better reflect your righteousness. Father, give us humility even as we approach these things and allow us to grow into the men and the women, the people that you desire us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.